This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by French fries, guys. There is a major war going on in the industry on the on the traditional French fries. The new the new battleground between the, a lot of the quick service guys. Do you have a French fry of choice, Franklin? I know, I know what you're gonna say, and I hate to agree with you, but uh, McDonald's the McDonald's French fries is, is pretty top notch. I like a traditional french fry i could even go a little more shoelace than uh, mcdonald's but i like a thin french fry traditional french fry i don't like the curly with the stuff on it and this war is all about how much condiment and i'm a condiment guy but i don't like my my french fry polluted with condiment i like it you know plain jane traditional that's how i like to keep it joe renzel what's your french fry choice what's your go-to french fry well i think i've acknowledged this on the pod before but as a former thrasher's french fry employee at Grover beach Delaware, wow that's my go-to local thing you know boardwalk fries are the winner some little vinegar on there they don't even give you ketchup you're not even allowed to get ketchup renzel shows his his true dc color i remember right thrashers there. that they were amazing we got a second one that you'll remember joe in terms of ben's chili bowl you want to talk about some combo we're throwing some chili on there onions cheese the whole thing coley you're gonna love it next time you come down oh are you kidding me ben's chili bowl i i live down the street from ben's chili bowl in dc that is the one time i will go condiment and a fry Ben's Chili Bowl. Five Guys. Five Guys has a good French fry Indeed. as well. D.C. Yeah. Another, Five another Guys bubble. has a good French fry. Have any, any of you tried the uh, Taco Bell, the nacho fry? I'm going to try today. Uh, I not, but I'm intrigued. Renzo, since they have delivery now and you're up at 2 a.m., why don't on your next Taco Bell run you get some nacho fries and report back to our audience on yeah, just do a taste test, man. On the street taste test. You have no idea. Down the street, they have a Taco Bell cantina. This is Taco Bell and margaritas. I mean, come on, I'm there every day. You got it all. You got it all in the bubble. You've got the high-end Taco Bell, the cantina. You've got the Five Guys fries. You've got Ben's Chili Bowl. I'm, I've never really said this before in the intro, but I'm feeling very jealous. It's about good. It's good to be Renzel right now. DC is stacked on the fry front. It's always good to be Renzel. Let's do the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the war for control of data is raging and restaurants are finding themselves in the middle of it, especially when it comes to third party delivery. We'll discuss what's happening and why it matters. Also, legislation was introduced in the U.S. Senate that establishes pilot programs regarding portable benefits. We'll discuss the implications. And artificial intelligence that's working its way through the drive-thru. We'll take a look at what that may mean for brands. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line partners, Franklin Coley, Carson Chandler, and back safely ensconced in the D.C. bubble is our good friend, Mr. Joe Renzel. And Joe is going to start off the show this week. Joe took the time to interview Brian Dodge uh, from the Retail Industry Leaders Association, who just is fresh off testifying in Congress on privacy and privacy matters and implications for retailers and restaurants and all consumer-facing brands. So I'm going to kick it over to Joe Renzel with Brian Dodge. All right, we're here with Brian Dodge, the uh, Chief Operating Officer of the Retail Industry Leaders Association, former colleague of mine. I really appreciate the time today, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Joe. Thank you. I know you had a big day earlier this week. There was some uh, 
testimony on the Hill and here in the bubble um, in the United States Senate. There was some other testimony going on in the House that I think some people were paying attention to. I was riveted to the screen uh, for the Brian Dodge panel um, <laughs> in the U.S. Uh, Commerce uh, Committee uh, on Data Privacy. So you participated in that with a bunch of other executives from tech, from, from different industries that, you know, where this data privacy issue really has been front and center. Help us understand, you know, why do retailers care about data privacy laws and, you know, what's in it for the consumer from that perspective? Well, great question. Thank you. First, uh, I picked up the Washington Post this morning and expected to see privacy uh, spread across the front page and was shocked to discover that some people were paying attention to this other hearing about Michael yeah. Cohen. So. This Cohen uh, guy is stealing, stealing your thunder, man. That's not I'll get I'll read that. that I'll read up on that story later and find out what it's all about. But uh, <laughs> privacy is kind of where it's at. Uh, yeah, so Senate Commerce had a hearing yesterday. In fact, uh, they had a hearing 24 hours after the House Energy and Commerce Committee had a similar hearing on data privacy. And, uh, you know, if if, uh, if businesses aren't paying attention to this, yeah, they, they certainly should be. This is going to have an enormous impact on the way that they operate, if not immediately, based on how they run their business. Uh, at some point in the not-too-distant future because states are taking action on privacy already, and uh, California did so at the end of last year, and there are implications on businesses already that they need to consider because they need to be in compliance by January 1st of next year. It is going to be difficult for businesses. Uh, any business who, who does online work of any scale or, or intends to is has got to be focused on what's happening in California. Uh, so that's the real impetus for it. Congress is, to jump ahead a little bit, Congress is taking action because they recognize that e-commerce in particular is ubiquitous. And when one state takes action, and all likelihood others will as well, and you don't want to end up with a patchwork of requirements for businesses, expectations for customers that are hard to track and hard to understand. And so the federal government is now looking more closely at how to resolve that before it gets out of control. Yeah, that makes sense. And let's uh, let's put the federal piece in a little bucket for later. When we talk about kind of these state laws that are emerging, um, obviously you mentioned California that's enacted, that's coming into effect next year, as you mentioned. And this is all about kind of control of data and buying and selling of data. And folks might think of it this as kind of, you know, big tech and Google and Facebook and others. Obviously, we understand the retailers are probably very sophisticated in terms of how they're approaching consumers. You know, what is maybe, you know, smaller individual companies, whether we're talking in the restaurant space, many of our listeners, uh, hotels, whether we're talking about franchisees, you know, what's the implication for some of these laws? Are we, are we really worried about things like private right of action? Are we really worried about compliance? What should folks be kind of keeping an eye out for as we look at the patchwork of state laws that are emerging? Great question. Let's start in California. If you collect any information that could trace back to an individual uh, or a household, and all like, and that includes name, this would be publicly available information. This could be information uh, that could otherwise be gleaned from the phone book. But if you collect it for some purpose, uh, and it traces back to an individual who currently lives in California or may soon live in California, uh, something that's probably really difficult for businesses to to anticipate, uh, you should care about this because you will soon have to be in compliance with the obligations out there in all likelihood. And so the failure to comply uh, will subject you to private rights of action. You mentioned that term. There's an opportunity for, for businesses to respond to inquiries, but if they fail to do so quickly enough, 
they're subject to uh, the, the plaintiff's bar to descend upon them to get them to pay up for failure to comply. So if you haven't looked into it, if you haven't talked to your third-party providers, if, if you're small enough and, and rely on them, you know, now is the time to do so. Find out what kind of services they're offering, what kind of advice they're giving. Um, you're going to need that. And that's just California. Washington State's moving. Other states are looking at this as well. Uh, it's all likelihood we're going to get later in this year, and we're going to see a number of other states who will take an action as well. And so you won't have just one state to think about. You'll have several states to think about. That's right. If you've got operations in multiple states, you're, you know, you're, you're adding to that complexity. Certainly, we don't expect cookie-cutter legislation from California to move. It'll be tweaked. It'll be different here, different there. So there'll be a lot of challenges out there, we expect, in the interim. Back to the federal yeah, piece, just, we all know. You can't, oh, sorry, go ahead. You can't, you, no, you just can't rest on the fact that you understand the state in which you live's laws, right? That's, once you have connected to the rest of the world through the, through the Internet, the, all these other things start to come into play. You have to now think more about who's on the other end of the transaction, who's on the end, other end of, you know, sharing some basic element of information. And that is going to become incredibly difficult as states move actively in this space this year. That's a great point. And uh, back to the kind of federal bucket, we all are familiar with the lightning speed with which Congress acts on, on issues of importance. Um, what is your expectation? What's the expectation of the retail industry? I know you guys have been working on this for a while. It seems like from an outsider's point of view, there's just a lot more churn, a lot more attention being paid to this. Certainly the Facebook, the Google, the conversations around that have probably motivated it. What's your guys' expectation? Should we be looking at this legislative session from a state perspective? Should we expect it to bleed into next year? How long is this process going to take? You know, crystal ball it, Mr. Dodge. Figure it all out for you. <laughs> well, you know, depending on the size of the business and your engagement level, I think you should be paying attention to all of it. Obviously, states have a tendency to move more quickly than the federal government does, so you need to pay attention uh, to what's happening there. But the federal process, I think, is, is meaningful. Yesterday's hearing was very substantive in nature. Uh, you had members on both sides of the aisle who were asking substantive questions, clearly trying to understand the four corners of an acceptable federal, a strong, uh, but politically acceptable federal privacy bill. Uh, I can't say, I think it would be foolish of me to uh, wager uh, when it's going to happen, but I don't feel like this is mired in politics in a way that other issues are. Um, certainly members on the left and the right were agreeing uh, on, on key elements of this. And we can talk about kind of what the, the sticking points will ultimately be on this. But I think there's a common recognition that, that California, that sort of tenor and tone uh, of the regulations in California will be the baseline for a federal bill. The expectations for businesses and the expectations for customers. We're not going to take a step back from that as we build a federal bill. I think it's about identifying the areas where that there was a, uh, either drafting errors or problematic uh, compliance issues because of a lack of input on the front end. Those are the kinds of things that the federal government needs to resolve uh, as they build uh, a federal solution. Well, that's all really good information for our listeners. I think everybody, you know, this is somewhat of an emerging issue, obviously, for different industries. It's been around for a while. For others, maybe are just coming to the table. It's good to know we got kind of leaders like yourself and Rila and other folks, um, you know, paying attention to what needs to be paid attention to. Just appreciate your time today, Brian, and, uh, you know, look forward to talking to you again when this is all figured out. Sure. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. So, Joe Renzo, I thought that was a very good uh, interview. Brian, obviously, on top of 
of this issue. He's as well positioned in our world as anybody. Franklin, what is your uh, what is your take on all that? It was a great interview. And if if we could rewind the tape, I'd like to take it back to uh, many months ago when California was really kind of considering this. It was actually just when California started to talk about it. It was in the tail end of the European Union enacting their own requirements, own data collection and and digital platforms and how they use data. And our own Joe Renzel was in his dojo in Italy, and he was working away. (laughs) I do remember Joe in the dojo. Yes, he was working away on our weekly publication top items. And we, you know, because the time zones, we woke up on Friday morning and there was nothing done. And we said, Renzel, what happened? And essentially, you know, he said, the dog ate my homework. He said, I'm in Europe and none of these, I can't access any of these American websites to do the research on, you know, what bills are moving and what bills aren't moving. And we're like, really? You got to be able to come up with something better than that. But um, I guess it was true. In fact, the European Union standards went into place. And because a lot of American companies weren't in compliance, their websites were blocked. And while Renzo was sitting on his veranda. I'm not buying it. Renzo, this is a context that has the history of he's the only man in America that every plane he's on doesn't have Internet access. <laughs> so I'm, it's a, little, it's a, little, a little specious. But anyway, you have the floor, Frank. So, so you know. Sites like major sites that are not just, you know, you can understand like the, the Tom's Picune or, uh, you know, the what's the Louisville paper, the the Post, right? It, it wouldn't wouldn't be active in, in the European Union, but but papers like the L.A. Times, you know, that are kind of national and international papers. He was not able to access them. I'm going to take him at his word and believe him. And this shows the challenge now that this California standard has gone into effect, although all the details haven't been worked out. I think a lot of restaurateurs, particularly small businesses and, and, and franchisees, are going to be called flat-footed in the same way that media companies and other folks that have sophisticated online operations and, and data collection operations were called flat-footed when the EU standard went into place. And so now we're seeing that California standard move a- across these states. And I think the level of awareness in, in a lot of folks, the retailers obviously are operating at very high end, but I think others are going to cop the Renzel defense when uh, <laughs> when they can no longer Hear operate. Hear no evil, see no evil, yeah, speak no yeah. evil. Yeah. No, but I, you know, so... You know, it's, it's one of these things where we look, we've been talking about this for years in this office. We should have been involved in this conversation three years ago, the restaurant industry. And of course, it wasn't a fire on the front door. So, you know, we can't we can't pay attention to it. So here we are three years too late to the conversation. And what's our strategy? Let's have a conference call. Right. Standard procedure. I do think, frankly, you made some good points about the relationship with companies and third party providers and who owns this data and who's going to be responsible for complying with all these, you know, statutes, not only in California, but these other states. And there may be an advantage now for not participating with some of these third-party delivery vehicles. Well, correct? One, one, of the, one of the concerns that I think a lot of restaurant companies have is that they're handing over too much data to these third-party, these third-party platforms, you know, the, the door dashes or the, the post made to the world. Potentially, this... This may, you know, allow them to maybe wrestle back some control, considering in which way this this legislation goes. I think it's, you know, it's hard to say. But listen, 
we need to be involved in this conversation because the next 40 years of, of you know, kind of economic activity is being decided now. And what we know is the trend line is more and more customers, a bigger slice of revenue is coming out of that kind of delivery piece of the pie. And so that's going to be a big deal. Mr. Renzel? Oh, sorry. I was just daydreaming about my, my time in my Italian villa. <laughs> Most important about that time was I was not with Franklin. That is by far the best part. But back to the topic at hand. You know, I think you guys are right, and I think the challenge with some of these emerging technologies is certainly in that third-party venue. But then we look at like what Domino's Pizza is rolling out in terms of their program, trying to entice more consumers. You know, more money spent at their stores. They're basically saying, you know, go to other of our competitors, take a picture of that pizza. You know, send it to us on the app. We'll give you points in our own account. You know, this is if that's the aspiration from a from a restaurant industry perspective, and I get it, that's a larger player in the market. If that's the aspiration, the amount of data. I mean, you're talking about geolocation. You're talking about you know interacting with the app. Like if you're not paying attention to this data privacy conversation, you're missing the boat. And you know, not to say that Domino's isn't, but again, other companies that are trying to play in this space, this is moving very fast. Whether we're talking about delivery or different um, trial and error efforts by by a lot of these companies to attract businesses and compete, um, they got to be watching these guardrails, and it's just going to expand. It's not going to go away. This is not an issue that's going to shrink. And I think one of the points that Brian made in the interview that was really relevant to me was that this is not a hyperpartisan issue. You know, this is a consumer protection issue. You've got D's and R's talking about this. Um, they might be talking about it in a different way, but it's not going to be your traditional kind of red-blue situation. I think the other kind of piece to be aware of as we talk about federal legislation, the big effort there is obvious, right? It's preemption. They want a, a bill passed, and this is where, contrary to what I just said, it does get a little political in terms of you know folks maybe on the left side of the aisle want to protect the standard that California has put into play and, and businesses are, of course, going to want to see a, maybe a different standard at the federal level. But preemption is going to be the serious bit of that. You really can't have an effective policy in a company, whether you're in one state or in multiple states, um, without some sort of level set across the board that would come with preemption. And Joe, I think this came out in the interview and maybe some of our previous comments, but I just want to highlight one one piece. This conversation is really focused and we keep talking about digital data collection and what's what's happening online. But really, this collection of data and warehousing of data and, and interaction and building these customer profiles, it really extends beyond the digital and into every other part of the business. You know, if you're doing mail campaigns to specific customers and, and building profiles, it potentially can touch that as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you're collecting consumer- Loyalty programs, any, any of that type of stuff, where, exactly. sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, I think we're saying the same thing. It's a, you know, anytime you're collecting any personal information, whether it's in the online space or not, um, you got to be, you know, paying attention to what the laws are around, you know, that negotiation. And it really becomes, you know, and this is maybe a little outside the box and maybe a little next step, but we heard in a state of a state um, speech by Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, the new concept of a data dividend. Uh, and this was just a couple of weeks ago, so there's not a lot of details out of it. But this is a concept where anytime a piece of data gets traded, you as the consumer get some sort of financial um, recompense for that transaction. If you, you know, monetize this process 
for the consumer, that changes the conversation around this issue dramatically in terms of the political viability of, of consumers you know, who might be concerned with their data, other consumers who might not, but now are saying, oh wait, I can get a check for this? Yeah, I'm gonna track this. I'm gonna be on all these lists and make sure that you know, I'm getting mine, you know, in terms of if my information gets bought or sold. Way early in the in the in the um, in that life cycle of that particular issue. But as these folks experiment with different solutions, you can see, you know, consumers really becoming a big voice in this issue. And that's important for restaurants, retailers, hotels, any consumer facing brand. Uh, in terms of the motivation that comes from those type of folks. So just, just from from a, from a restaurant industry's perspective, you know, just context and where we all where all the pieces fit, this is a big issue that affects every consumer facing industry. This is an issue that that the the ball is going to be carried by the chambers, you know, the state chambers, the U.S. chamber, by the retail, by the tech folks. There's not a whole lot of, you know. I don't think the, the restaurant associations have the political power in most states to affect outcomes one way or the other on this, but there is a role for those associations to get their members, again, to my mind, four or five years too late, but to get their members and those member companies very smart on what the next couple of years from a compliance perspective may look like. The other piece I would add to that is, I think that's all right, and the other piece I would add is that the nuances of how this may impact restaurants may be a little different than how it impacts other industries. Because of the delivery piece. Because of delivery, because a lot of restaurants are dependent on third parties to handle this data and to handle the delivery, whereas retailers are going to be doing a lot of this warehousing of data for themselves, and they have very... I'm not saying the restaurants don't have sophisticated consumer databases because they do, but but not on the scale of retailers. Yeah. And they're they're probably not doing geofencing in the way that, that retailers are right now, right? They may be in the future. So I guess what I'm what I'm highlighting there is restaurants need to be looking at this issue and falling behind the rest of the business community and private right to action and compliance and some of that stuff. But they also need to be sitting down with the third party partners and thinking through how they are different in this conversation. And I think maybe you said it in the beginning, you certainly said it before, the guardrails of the economy for the next 50 years are, are being developed right now. And unless we understand the nuances in, in partnership with our third party partners and potentially how we can create competitive advantage with our third party partners and you know, we need to be thinking through all that now and having the right conversations and being a part of these policy making conversations where we're just going to get dictated to us the rules of the game for the future and probably not in our terms. So speaking of how traditional bricks and mortar retailers and restaurants are responding to the new economy, uh, there's new legislation in Washington the last couple of weeks from Senator Mark Warner of Virginia that is trying to address some of the challenges that the workforce faces in the gig economy namely a series of, of bills to create a, basically a new support system for gig workers, tax credit to businesses that train workers, uh, help workers pay for their own training. More importantly, though, is a system that we've been talking about forever of portable benefits, health care, sick time, paid leave off. Basically, the first time that portable benefits has, has reared its head as freestanding legislation in the United States Senate. Franklin, we've been talking about portable benefits since I had hair. What do you think about this legislation? That was a long, long time ago. Um, 
Yeah, until now, well, I guess until the past six or 12 months, this has really been a conversation in the laboratories in Seattle and New York City and other places. I mean, this has been a theoretical conversation limited to kind of academic think tanks and, you know, the bluest of blue little heavens, little jurisdictions where they test stuff like this. Now there's a federal piece of legislation. It's going to start... Uh, it's for pilot programs. Basically, it's enabling states and localities to try pilot programs. It's not a but, federal law. But it's the conversation. Right. This is now a legit national conversation. Right. Whereas before, we were highlighting as it's coming down the pike, it's going to be an, a national conversation at some point because this is how these things work. They bubble up in, in a couple little places and then they scale, right? But now it's it's officially a legit national conversation. And uh, it syncs with some other national conversations that are going on, like the Republican proposal for paid leave, which would tap into Social Security. That is essentially a stepping stone to portable benefits. And part of that conversation is around decoupling these benefits from traditional employment, which is Mark Warner's whole point is, you know, in the modern economy, we can't have all our benefits tied to the traditional employment relationship. And this is four bills bundled together in a big package. And all of them go to address workforce training, access to mortgage, access to benefits, and, and tries to, I don't know if decouple is the right word, but it, it tries to set up a whole new system that allows those traditional benefits to be accessed by gig economy workers. Joe Renzo, what do you think? What's your take on it? I think it's pretty interesting because it's it's kind of a concept piece. And you mentioned a couple others. I know we're focused on, on portable benefits, and that is a, a new issue, relatively speaking, from a federal perspective. The interesting thing to me is a lot of this is based around kind of incentivizing business behavior as opposed to throwing a mandate out there. Now, it could turn into that, um, but I think it was interesting, some of the articles reading about it, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, this isn't, you know, an effort to fundamentally rewrite classification laws. This is about extending benefits to these gig workers. I just think that's an interesting approach from a Democrat senator. He's obviously trying to build bridges and obviously not trying to be in a position where they're throwing a bunch of mandates out early because it's a little early in the process. Now, that might shift and change, but that was something that drew out to me from a political standpoint in terms of its initial rollout. And I, I doubt that any of these are going to be enacted into law. And, and I don't and I, and I doubt any mandates are going to be enacted into law. I, I think the important takeaway here is we're now having a national conversation around this. And it's going to be probably years before these things actually become... But like the privacy thing, now is the time to get involved in the conversation before yeah. it's too late. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the framework and the, and the direction in which this conversation is going to go, all that, all that is happening now. And the lines are being drawn. And privacy, you mentioned during the privacy conversation, Renzel, that this is not yet really a partisan conversation. It's easier to see where the partisan breaks could be in this, but that it's not really a partisan conversation in this piece yet either. Not quite. It, it could be shortly. But yet again, all those lines, and those aren't the only lines, right? But all those lines and where the business community is and different sectors of the business community, all that has yet to be laid out. And, but it's going to happen over the coming months and coming years, and we would be wise to get in and be a part of that conversation sooner rather than later. So without further ado, let's jump into the legislative scorecard. 
Mr. Kefoffer is out of pocket this morning, somewhere between the International Franchise Association Conference and maybe a golf course. We're not exactly sure, but we have the best and the brightest here to pick up the torch and carry on. So let's uh, jump into wages. The biggest story, I think, is the Labor Department, even though it has not released the official overtime rule. Sources inside the department are telling the press that the new threshold will be at $35,000. That is up from 23 and change. So we will be watching for that rule to come out. But Mr. Renzel, let's go to you and tell us what's going on around the states. Right. On the wage front, we got Arizona. Okay. The House approved uh, legislation that would create actually a sub-minimum training wage set at $7.25 per hour for employees under 22 that work 20 hours per week or less. This is uh, intended to kind of soften that voter pass initiative that raised the state minimum wage up to $12 uh, by 2020. So that's in progress right now. In Colorado, we're talking about legislation to actually repeal preemption laws, prohibiting localities from setting their own minimum wages. So we think about Denver, you know, they're making action to raise their wage. This has been uh, rumored for a couple weeks now, but it actually got introduced in both the House and the Senate. So we'll continue to watch that. That'll be a big one. Over in Hawaii, you know, a little Aloha Joe action. Uh, Legislation to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2023 got its final committee stop and is headed to the Senate floor. So we've got similar legislation working its way through the House. This also moved last session. We'll be watching that one pretty closely. Uh, Over in Maryland, uh, the Kefauver Homestead, the House approved uh, legislation increasing the wage up to $15 an hour by 2025. It preserved the cash wage for tipped employees at the current level of $3.63. Uh, and that action now moves to the Senate. I've heard there's a couple different things going on in the Senate, so we'll have to watch the details pretty closely on that. In New Mexico, uh, the Senate did advance two minimum wage bills this week. Um, One calls for the increase to $12 an hour by 2021. The second would raise it up to $9.25 and then to $10 an hour in 2021, so more of a moderate increase. Both would set the server wage at 30% of the regular minimum wage. I think remains to be seen kind of which path uh, leads forward, particularly in the House. In Pennsylvania, um, you know, we've got kind of a replay of what we thought was the old play book with uh, with Governor Wolf proposing a wage increase in the Republican Senate, um, you know, blocking that activity. But we've seen some rumors now uh, and some statements from Republican legislative leaders that have kind of signaled an openness. Um, although, you know, significantly less than $15 an hour, but that's the first time they've done that. So we might be looking at what might be the beginning of a compromise uh, that does end up including an increase. Finally, up in Vermont, we have the state Senate approved uh, an increase in the state minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2024. This bill now moves to the House. Well, folks will recall last year the governor vetoed similar legislation. Um, however, after this last election cycle, Democrats now have a veto-proof majority in both bodies. So we'll see, you know, in terms of how that works, the House is likely to move on this relatively soon. So we'll keep an eye on that. Well, Renzel, thanks for that inspiring rundown. Uh, one late arrival that I would throw in in the mix. Uh, We mentioned this last week, but the Wisconsin governor has released his budget and he is advocating for a minimum wage increase of $1 to $8.25 an hour in 2020. And that would increase to $9 an hour in 2020. 
21 and after that it would go up 75 cents per year in each of the next two years and cost of living adjustment after that yet again this is the governor's proposal in his budget looks like the legislature is probably going to oppose that he has stated he thinks there's a clear pathway we will see how that shakes out and with that let's close out wages and move along to paid leave Mr. Renzel, back to you. What's going on in the paid leave front? Right. In paid leave, we've got uh, a lot of action this week, uh, particularly up in New England. Uh, in Maine, you've got a Senate committee finally holding a public hearing. They got snowed out a couple weeks ago. So they held the public hearing on paid sick leave. Uh, this is likely going to move forward. Uh, up in Maine, you have a very easy valid initiative process, and they've gone through kind of really tough times from a legislative perspective on issues like minimum wage and marijuana legalization and other things that originated in the ballot box. And so, you know, advocates are using that threat um, and legislators might hunker down here to try and get something done. And obviously they're in a Democrat trifecta, which is very different from where they were under LePage. So we expect some movement on paid leave. There's also activity going on in Portland, uh, the city of Portland, where the citywide, uh, the city council rather, uh, committee voted unanimously to advance a city paid sick leave mandate. So that's also, you know, adding some complications and frankly some motivation, although there is no preemption being uh, contemplated in the statewide bill on the paid sick leave. Over in New Hampshire, you had the House uh, voting to support a mandatory paid family leave program. This was by a 199 to 133 vote one of the largest chambers uh, in the country there up in New Hampshire. But that number, why it's important in the House, is that it's a little bit uh, less than uh, what, we would, what it would need to override a governor veto uh, in New Hampshire, which is the likely scenario. Now this bill, this is part of the process in New Hampshire, so they're subject to another vote on the House floor. Uh, it would need to be reconciled with a Senate pass bill offering a similar program. Uh, the important thing for folks to know here is that both proposals are funded by a uh, half a percent payroll deduction on the employee uh, and it provides 60% of wages for 12 weeks. So we'll watch that and we'll see if the House can, can get a higher vote count, uh, which would be, uh, over, would be would have the potential to override a governor veto. Over in Vermont, we've got uh, legislation that, if passed, would actually offer one of the most generous paid leave programs in the country. It has gone through a committee, uh, I believe on the House side. The news this week is that it kind of came into the, the Ways and Means Committee, which are the, the budget folks and the, and the financial people. They're raising some serious concerns, uh, even on the Dem side, related to the financing and solvency of the system. This, this program, it's so generous, it relies on a 0.93% payroll tax, which is split between employers and employees, and it replaces 100% of wages for 12 weeks. So that 100% that of wages is really the mark that most folks uh, don't get even in states that have paid family leave. And the uh, cost burden for the employer, the split between employers and employees is unique uh, up there. So we'll be watching that super closely. And then finally, uh, some interesting news. You have Unilever, the product manufacturer, um, announcing a grant program offering up to $5,000 to fathers who don't have access to paternity leave at their places of work. Uh, the program pledged a million dollars over two years uh, and established a grant application process for, for new dads to participate in the program. Interesting to note because you've got, you know, a corporate entity essentially, you know, seeking to offer paternity leave to uh, fathers that are outside of their workforce. 
you know, for the betterment of society. And I think the goal, some of the readings we were, we were looking at around it is to make paternity leave uh, main, more mainstream. Um, was the stated goal of this effort. So just an interesting development there. All right. And your favorite topic, Mr. Renzel, scheduling. What's going on there? Yeah. One one new thing on scheduling here. We've been talking about this for, it seems like, a couple of years now, but the Los Angeles City Council finally um, actually held a press conference uh, along with activists from the Fair Work Week initiative announcing plans to introduce uh, restrictive scheduling legislation in the city. So folks will know that this has happened in a lot of different Localities across the country. Oregon has the only statewide bill. Philadelphia was the most recent actor uh, on this. Los Angeles looks like they're considering, uh, you know, some provisions, although it hasn't been drafted yet. But we're looking at two weeks' notice of work schedules, written and posted schedules, as well as access to additional hours. I'm sure once we see the language, it'll be very similar to what we've seen past in other jurisdictions across the country, and so. In such a big market like Los Angeles, operators are really going to have to look out on that and understand what size businesses are affected and what the compliance issues might be because it it's looks likely to uh, get enough momentum there in Los Angeles. But we'll keep an eye on it nonetheless. And finally, we will close things out with labor policy. A lot to report here. Some, some news out of the Labor Department. We mentioned the overtime issue earlier, but also... The Labor Department has sent its proposed joint employer rule to the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget. This is usually kind of the, the last step in the, in the process before the, the rule is released. And this rule is expected to reaffirm that traditional joint employer standard. This would apply to Fair Labor Standards Act claims uh, against, uh, you know, wage theft or overtime issues. And so this is very important. At the exact same time, we have a similar rule progressing through the National Labor Relations Board, and we're still waiting to see on that. Also, you know, one of the other items this week, In-N-Out Burger had appealed a decision by the NLRB to the U.S. Supreme Court. Essentially, it was found that employees could wear Fight for 15 buttons while they worked. In and out made a, a good run at it and a noble argument, the, the, but the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to pick up the case. So, unfortunately, that precedent will stand for the time being. Another item out of Colorado, very important item actually. Uh, the pay equity legislation that was under consideration there that would have been one of the uh, most aggressive requirements in the, in the country was heavily amended in its first committee stop, and a number of employer-friendly provisions were added, including uh, additional justifications for wage differentials, geography, education, etc. And so that conversation there is going to continue to play out. There's more committee stops in both chambers and there will be additional opportunities to amend that bill. I suspect something will probably be will come out at the, the end of the session, but it's probably going to look a lot different than the initial legislation. Finally, going over to New Hampshire, this ongoing conversation around no poaching agreements, non-competes, um, is playing out there where the Senate, in a bipartisan manner, they didn't even have a roll call vote. It was just a voice vote because support was so overwhelming. They approved legislation that would prohibit low-wage employers defined as employees that make less than or equal to twice the federal minimum wage. It prohibits them from entering into non-compete agreements, basically barring non-compete agreements in the state. This is obviously part of a, a national trend line we've been talking about for some time. 
that is it for uh, labor policy. And then one more item I'll sneak in before we close out the legislative scorecard. That Wyoming legislation, the 7% corporate income tax, is now officially dead because legislative session has closed out. So dodged a bullet there in Wyoming. And that is it for this week's legislative scorecard. Okay, it's time for our Paul Revere segment where we look down the road a bit and see what's coming around the corner for operators. And as always, Carson Chandler joins us. Carson, a couple good things this week. Yeah, good day, uh, Mr. Kefauver. Um, we always like to find good reads for our listeners, right? That's the that's the, 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 the mission of the Paul Revere segment, an article that's worth their time and something that they should be paying attention to. But what's better than, than one story? Two stories. Two stories. Two stories that are maybe from two different publications, but offer perspectives or two different perspectives on the on, on the same issue. So that's what we're doing this week. And we're talking about artificial intelligence and its potential impacts on the industry, right? Obviously, there's a million conversations and pieces, you know, right now or last half a year about how robots and AI technology are going to reshape the industry, how they're going to replace workers, all that sort of thing. Uh, but the Washington Post has a piece that, that delves into one aspect of that, and that's how different companies... McDonald's, Taco Bell, and, and even smaller brands are testing AI at their drive-thrus. So this, the piece specifically looks at drive-thrus. And, you know, the, 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 the short version of this is Alexa taking your order. You know, right now they're in testing, but, but everything points to at some point in the next six months to two years, that's what's going to happen. We're going to move away from a human being, say, you know, do you want fries with that, to some version of an AI-powered Alexa. And, and the drive-thru is where it's going to happen first. That's right. That's quick right. service, quick service restaurant drive throughs Yep. And they're already testing that, you know, doing that improves speed and efficiency by anywhere from 25 to 50 percent. So, so then the piece goes on to talk about how, you know, AI replacing workers and covers a lot of the same ground that we talked about. But you take that piece, there's a second piece in the New York Times, and if you look at them kind of both as one, it really paints an interesting picture, kind of the future of automation, how it relates to labor. The second piece uh, is kind of a companion piece. It explores the viability for a robot tax on, on, on brands. And basically, you know, options for eliminating some of the tax incentives for companies that are currently investing in automation and what ultimately a tax structure might look like for companies that are going to use these robots and AI. And where is that robot tax? I assume that's coming from the anti-tech left. It's it's a little bit of the anti-tech left, but it's also coming from labor, right? If we if we are going to replace uh, that would be the anti-tech left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're going to replace a worker, you're going to have to retrain. So 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 we're, so we're making it harder to retain actual workers by continuing to ratchet up the minimum wage, by making restrictive scheduling, by putting licensing go. mandates on it. So we make it harder to retain workers, but if we go the other way, now we're going to tax robots. Is that what we're saying? That's what we're saying. At least it's something worth paying attention to. Again, it's one of these conversations that's kind of, you know, in its embryonic stage here. But as we know, things move very, very quickly when it comes to technology. And I, I didn't realize how fast some of those bigger brands, you mentioned McDonald's, Taco Bell, how fast they were moving down this down yep. this road. And, and it's here and the others will follow. You know, there is something about... When good customer service is done at a drive-thru, that would be something to miss. I mean, I I have a, a, a Duncan person that uh, I used to see all the time that was just, you know, cheerful, good morning. You know, there's going to be a little bit of backlash, but it won't it won't be much. The, the, the last part of that talks about, you know, there are some brands that may choose to be, you know, the opposite, right? We're going to be we're going to be the high service brand, or at least we're going to offer that at certain locations. But, you know, the, the bottom line is, you know, for, for a lot of reasons, cost being the most, you know, it's it's 
it's coming, just a question of, of how soon it gets. So when I think of artificial intelligence and robots, I think of Franklin. Oh, absolutely. Do you think we can replace him? I'll pay a tax. I'll pay tax right now. I'll pay tax right now. Not just much. Get, Done. Yeah. Done. Yeah. No, it's good stuff. And, it's some, it, and again, it's, it goes back to we're arguing both sides of the same coin here. We're, we're incentivizing people through public policy to de facto automate, and then we're penalizing for automation. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a conundrum for employers and how to leverage technology. But at the end of the day, I think the robots will win. So Franklin, you had a lot of good. You're on a roll this 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 pod. You had a lot of good insights. Uh, appreciate. It. I think my favorite insight was the visual of Joe Renzel in the dojo. Dojo Joe Renzel. And that was like within weeks of being Aloha Joe. He stayed from Hawaii like three weeks and then went to Italy. Right. He stopped over in D.C. for 24 hours before he landed at the uh, the dojo. From the beaches to the dojo and back. Joe, are you going to defend yourself? Hey, as I said at the beginning, sometimes it's good to be Renzel. So, so Renzel, when's the next time you go back to Italy? Your weight loss thing, what, how are you doing on that? Oh, I forgot about that. I'm doing pretty well. We got uh, March 15th as the end. Uh, my brother-in-law this last weekend tried to switch up the different bets, right? So he knows. Yeah. He knows who the he front knows. runner is. He's losing. He's worried. Yeah. They need to check in with Chandler. So I, I figure Renzel, the diet's over March 15th. Renzel will be on a plane to Italy by May 1, going back to Milan, getting fitted for some new Euro suits. Whole skinny new, pants. All his skinny Taylor pants. Taylor has got the denim laid he's out He's got to get a whole new crew of, you know, size 7 Buster Brown Bruno Mali shoes that he wears. And Don't forget my gold chain necklaces, though. That's my that's my piece de resistance, if you will. Well played. You hang out in Italy, you pick up terms like that. It's impressive. And he used a French term to talk about Italy. <laughs> that was a good stuff. That's continent. He was on the continent, man. I'm a, I'm a globalist, guys. I'm a globalist. All right. That's the last word. When the moon hits your eye like a bigger pizza pie, that's amore. When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine, that's amore. Bells will ring, tingle-ling-a-ling, tingle-ling-a-ling, and you'll sing Vita Bella. Hearts will play tippy-tippy-tay, tippy-tippy-tay, like...